the way I describe it is, you know, when do you ever wake up in the morning, um, open up a newspaper, a digital newspaper or a real newspaper, a hard, co- hard copy, when do you ever open it up and, and the headline is, there were no crashes of 747s or 777s last night or, or the water is safe to drink again this morning. I mean, actually in, in Flint, Michigan, that would be a headline. Um, uh, but because we do take for granted public health, like you say, when it works, nobody, um, pays it any mind. So we, we, we have this tendency to go from sort of neglect to panic and then back to neglect and not invest in the long term, um, and especially the preventable kinds of things. We, we even saw that in Texas with the electric grid that failed so mis- miserably a few months ago. Um, people just choosing not to invest in public goods in a preventive way that makes sense. Someone, someone famously said, and I wish I could remember who it was, that in the United States, we've, we've, um, privatized profit and socialized risk. So, 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 you know, you know, it's all about making money and, um, it's what I used to call market fundamentalism, really. And, and forget it, forgetting that the public sector has a, and government has a really important role to play. And along those lines, I remember reading Bill Gates saying something about, you know, the private sector didn't eradicate smallpox. It was the public sector that did it. And I think if one good thing at all comes out of the whole COVID mess in the United States is maybe a recognition that public Public health is important, and one needs to invest for the long term uh, to make sure that uh, we're better prepared next time. Today, I will be talking about public health with Robert Steinglass. Welcome to Techua with Benjamin Morse. Welcome back, everyone. Over the past year or so, our world has been gripped by the global COVID-19 pandemic, which forced conversations about public health back to the forefront once again. Many of my colleagues and friends working in public health have told me over the years that when public health programs are working, when they are truly being effective, we don't see or hear about these achievements. It is only when there is a public health failure that we read about it in the paper or have a conversation with our friends and family. Public health is all around us, all the time. Seatbelts we wear in our cars, the drinking water coming out of our faucets, the vaccines that we receive to prevent disease. There are teams of public health experts working around the clock to ensure that our communities stay safe and healthy, not just during a global pandemic, but all of the time. Today's conversation is all about global public health. My guest today is Robert Steinglass. Robert is a titan in the public health sector globally. He is currently an independent public health consultant who, for 40 years, strengthened immunization programs at all levels across 50 countries around the world. He worked primarily in Africa, Asia, and with the National Immunization Survey at the Center for Disease Control here in the United States. Robert has worked in smallpox eradication, both as a Peace Corps volunteer in northern Ethiopia in the early 1970s, and also as a World Health Organization operations officer in North Yemen. 
After playing a key role in eradicating smallpox globally, uh, he went on to work for the World Health Organization for over a decade, establishing nationwide immunization programs in North Yemen, Oman, and Nepal. After this, he settled into a 30-year career with Jon Snow, Inc., uh, based in Washington, D.C. At JSI, he led immunization teams on succession of many USAID-funded projects. Uh, He also oversaw and provided technical support to various countries, uh, serving uh, on many advisory committees at organizations like the WHO or UNICEF. Robert retired in 2018 as the director of the JSI Immunization Center, which, by the way, he also founded. He's authored nearly 40 peer-reviewed journal articles and several book chapters on immunization and vaccine-preventable disease control. Need I say more? Uh, His impact on the world of public health is truly immeasurable. In this conversation, Robert meets the moment with grace and nuance and pulls back the curtain on the intricacies of global public health. He also reflects on his experiences working and living abroad, both as a Peace Corps volunteer, but then also as a public health professional. We spent some time exploring what Ethiopia was like in the 1970s, talking through Robert's work in eradicating smallpox in the country, but also shifting his focus to address uh, an emerging famine and humanitarian crisis at the same time that he was there. The granular details in his stories bring to life a cornucopia of personal experiences working abroad, which provides a glimpse into the life of a public health expert. Whether you're interested in a career in global public health or you're simply curious about Robert's amazing story, this conversation will not disappoint. So with that, I'm happy to share this one with all of you today. Please enjoy. All right. Welcome to the show, Robert. It is such an incredible pleasure to have you here today. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Benjamin. You know, and uh, we were brought together through a few mutual friends and colleagues uh, in the public health sector. And after diving into your background, uh, as well as talking to you uh, a few times now, I'm just so astonished with what you've been able to accomplish both in Ethiopia during your time as a Peace Corps volunteer, but also around the world in the public health sector. So it's, it's really a true honor to have you here today. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed what I've done with my career. So, um, work, there was too much of it at times, but I, it always gave me great pleasure. And I, I loved traveling. I loved being in foreign cultures. Yeah, that's, that's great. And we'll definitely get into all of that. I also wanted to, on the top end of this conversation, congratulate you for your recent award for co-authoring the Eradicating Smallpox in Ethiopia book, which really chronicles that that work that you and uh, just over 70 other Peace Corps volunteers did in Ethiopia in the 1970s. Uh, I'm just absolutely amazed with the stories that you and your colleagues uh, are are putting out there uh, from working with the the World Health Organization uh, with their smallpox eradication program. And, you know, ultimately those efforts led to eliminating smallpox, uh, not just from Ethiopia, but around the world. So I just wanted to give you a a really heartfelt congratulations at the top of this. Yeah, it was um, um, it was 
interesting putting the book together. I wasn't one of the editors, but uh, the editors um, realized that we had an amazing story to tell because our Peace Corps experience was quite unique. Uh, so we tell that story in the form of um, almost like memoirs uh, written by, I think it's 14 of us, including um, a chapter by the head of the smallpox eradication program globally, a man named D.A. Henderson, who sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, it was um, a fun book to put together because it forced us to sort of remember and relive some of those experiences. And uh, some of us had kept diaries during our time as Peace Corps volunteers, so we had great source material to um, to uh, plumb. And um, it's available on Amazon, so um, hopefully people who are interested in what's going on in the world of COVID and public health might be interested in what, what went on in the early 70s with smallpox. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you bring up journaling. I I made it a priority for myself to journal every single day that I uh, was in Ethiopia as a Peace Corps volunteer. And, and having that, uh, that journal is so powerful. It's so incredible. It really transports you back to that that time. And, and sometimes my journal entry was like, ah, too exhausted from the day. This is my <laughs> entry. Um, but it's so nice to have that. Yeah, it, remind, it helps remind you as you get older of um, who you were then um, and uh, gives you insight as to how you um, evolved over time as well. Yeah. And while we're talking about the book, too, I should also mention that there's a, a really wonderful review of the book uh, that is written by former Time Magazine correspondent Barry Hillebrand, who also happens to have served uh, in Ethiopia as a Peace Corps volunteer. And um, I'll make sure that I link this review along with the uh, the book on Amazon in the show notes for folks to to dive into for themselves. Oh, that, that's that's great. That's very kind of you. And in fact, to our surprise, it even won an award from the Peace Corps Writers um, Group as I think the best book of the of Peace Corps last year, twenty twenty, where it was the best um, adventure story. I forget exactly the category. That's that's fantastic. Well, you know, let's jump into it then. You know, I want to get into all of that. Um, and I definitely want to pivot back to that specific moment in this conversation. Uh, but I also understand that Ethiopia was, while a very significant uh, part of your experiences, uh, but a, a small slice of your over 40 years working in international immunization and abroad. Uh, I really think to do your story justice, uh, let's start with where you grew up. Can we go back a little bit? <laughs> okay, where it all began. Where okay. it all began. Okay, well, um, you know, I grew up um, in an um, upper middle class neighborhood outside of New York City on Long Island, a place called Hewlett, and um, a very comfortable life and um, with two older brothers and um, parents who, you know, really valued education. I went to good schools. And uh, I think what maybe made it a little bit unusual is that my dad himself had traveled as a young man. And my dad was quite old when I was born. He was 43 years old. So he was born in 1907. It seems like impossibly a long time ago. Right. And uh, in the late 1920s, as a young man, just 20, 21 years old, he was sent by his company to um, what he called Formosa, which is now Taiwan. In those days, Taiwan was under Japanese rule called Formosa. And um, so as a young man, he had all these amazing stories and experiences traveling to mainland China, traveling to Japan, living in Formosa. And I think he whet my appetite for knowing the world. That's incredible. And 
so incredible to have a role model that that close to you that was able to show you that that opportunity that option even existed right yeah it's um you know i met um there were a lot of peace corps volunteers that i've met over the years and some of them had really never even left their um their um home area and for, for generations. I mean, I remember one guy from Wisconsin, he was a seventh or fifth or sixth or seventh generation Wisconsinite, and he had never left Wisconsin, and now he had joined the Peace Corps. I, I always felt that was must have been a mind-blowing experience. In my case, I was exposed. as a, Even as a young kid, I remember having the mumps in summer camp. In those days, you know, parents didn't think anything if they had the money to send their kids off to summer camp for eight weeks. I was six years old at summer camp and everybody in the in the camp got the mumps. And I remember being in a, an isolation ward uh, in the dispensary and my dad and mom weren't permitted to be inside when they visited. So they were outside and my dad proceeded to teach me how to count to a million in Japanese. I was six years old. Um, it sounds more impressive than it is, because if you get just, uh, you know, one to 10, you're 99% <laughs> of the way there. <laughs> That's an incredible story. And I feel like it foreshadows your career in immunization, right? Like at a six, as a six-year-old to have an experience like that, you know, I imagine that stuck with you in interesting ways that, that maybe you've thought about, maybe you haven't. Yeah, no, definitely. I was um, always, for some strange reason, um, attracted to, um, you know, foreign lands. Uh, um, I, in our third grade class, we had to do public speaking, and every week we had to uh, speak on a topic. And I sort of cornered the market on the topic of small countries that nobody, including my teachers, had ever heard of. And I, I even had people, you know, accusing me of making up the stories and making up the countries. But it was easier for me to do that because it was an interest than to each week have to worry on Sunday night, what am I going to talk about tomorrow, Monday morning? I always basically knew I was going to talk about some faraway land. And it was always small countries that I focused on and um, and got to know a little bit about, even though you know, it was just sitting sitting in an armchair. That just shows how powerful the imagination is, especially as a young child <laughs> and like having been, you know, influenced by your, your father and his, his travels. Like I have kind of similar memories, not necessarily counting to a million in Japanese, but I, I definitely <laughs> have stories of, you know, traveling, uh, abroad or like hearing about my, my parents and their excursions going abroad. And mm -hmm. they didn't do anything that was extensive. In fact, they, they traveled abroad for the first time much later in their lives. Uh, but I grew up traveling internationally since I was three years old. And oh I, I, there was just kind of this allure of going uh, to a new place, to a totally new culture and experiencing something that was so incredibly foreign, not just during that time that you were there, but then coming back home and mm -hmm. having conversations with my friends that like, again, like you said, they, they were like, yeah, you're making all of this up. Like there's no way that there was a bat inside your, you know, bungalow that you were staying in or whatever the story <laughs> is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly right. It's, and in fact, that's one of the challenges too, because when we came back from living overseas with our kids, uh, they were eight and 10 years of age and they had never lived in the States. They had visited it every two years on home leave. Um, but they had grown up in, you know, um, North Yemen, Oman, and Nepal. And um, 
They would visit um, their grandparents uh, in the United States and their grandmother in Ireland. My wife is from Ireland. Um, and that would um, be sort of um, a punctuation, really, on their real their real um, experience, which was living in a foreign culture. So um, when they finally did come back to the United States and all of us to live, um, their real task was to try to acculturate as quickly as possible uh, and to learn what it meant to be an American, which meant for a while they sort of dropped their interest in their overseas unusual experience, but they regained it. Yeah. And, you know, I know you and I have talked about this before, but it, it really is amazing when you have, when you share something like that with somebody else. So you, maybe, you know, somebody else that has, has lived abroad, spent some time abroad, maybe like in our case, uh, Peace Corps, you know, you can connect on that level. You can really understand what that experience may have been like living in a totally different country and, you know, having your existence be, you know, completely transformed in really all of the ways. But when you get in a conversation with somebody that maybe hasn't had that direct experience uh, and, and their imagination just can't stretch that far, it it really is something that like you know, it seems isolating at times. I think I've had some really amazing conversations uh, with folks that had never uh, really traveled or, or thought about something like that. But I, I've also had to, like you said, kind of pull those pieces out of the conversation intentionally, knowing that it's it's a really big leap to ask somebody to to try to relate to an experience like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. So true. Uh, even to this day, when we're, you know, socializing, of course, these days with COVID, um, uh, we don't do it. We haven't been doing it for a while in person, but yet we find ourselves having to um, check ourselves because anytime a conversation turns to whatever topic, there's always some amazing experience that is so alien so unfamiliar to the people around the table, unless they happen to have also been Peace Corps volunteers or fellow, um, you know, uh, people who, who traveled as well. So um, we always have to catch ourselves because whatever the story is, it's usually even 10 times more extreme, whatever happened to us overseas. And I, we, my wife and I were just saying the other day that one of the things we miss is by is having uh, a group of people who have also traveled around us on a regular basis because it's always such a great time. It's so much fun because whatever the topic is, you can just, someone could just, it, you could almost, it could be like a word game where <laughs> someone picks a, picks a card and the card says, you know, border crossings or the card says bus, <laughs> bus trips or yep. the card says, you know, you know, whatever, diarrhea. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you yeah. name it. Um, there's, everyone has a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, all these stories just popped into my head, as you said, all of those <laughs> words. Uh, it is, it is true, truly amazing, the power that it has. Um, I want to, you know, ask kind of your origin story within Peace Corps. I know that I've had a lot of guests on this podcast that have had the opportunity to serve as Peace Corps volunteers. And one of the things that I, I really love about the experience, about the organization, and really about at the end of the day, the volunteers that, that end up having those experiences is that every single story is different. It's unique. It's a snowflake. It is something that, uh, you know, has so many overlaps and we can all relate to one another and we can really connect on that deep level, like you were just saying. Uh, but we all come from very different places and we all end up uh, in our countries of service uh, in the same place doing similar work. But we all got there, you know, in a different path. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you ended up uh, in Ethiopia in, in the early 70s. 
Well, um, I was really determined to go overseas. I, I, um, and I wrote so many letters, you know, this was before emails and computers and whatnot. And I wrote so many letters to different organizations that I knew about or had heard about or learned about in the library. And um, every organization responded by saying, well, you have no background working overseas. You're not tested. And every one of those practically said, just why not consider joining the Peace Corps? So I said, okay, why not consider joining the Peace Corps? And um but but I was also very ignorant in many ways because I, I know that things have changed in terms of um, how Peace Corps decides where you're going to be assigned, what you're going to be doing. But in those days, in 1972, I suppose, when I applied, um, I didn't know enough to, um, you know, I was just ignorant, put it that way. So, so on my application, I said, I'll only join the Peace Corps if you send me to work in a public health program in Ethiopia. I mean, talk about being very directive. Um, and, you know, some months elapsed and I got an, um, a phone call eventually from Peace Corps, or actually it was a letter from Peace Corps uh, informing me that um, I was um, being invited to go to Sierra Leone to help revise the social studies or civics curriculum for high school students. And I, you know, picked up the phone brashly, ignorantly, naively, and uh, spoke to someone a little bit irritated I was and said, haven't you read my application? I said, I'll only join Peace Corps if you send me to Ethiopia working in, uh, in public health. Now, I didn't know that not all countries had public health in their portfolio. So I could have been asking for an, impo an impossibility. But the amazing thing is, is I got it. And um, I up until just a few years ago, where I've learned that Peace Corps now apparently does that more often, asking people to express their choices. Up until just a few years ago, I had never heard of anybody else who actually w had been so lucky as to get what they asked for. And consequently, I was happy as a, a clam. I mean, I, I was totally vested in the country and I was determined to succeed. Yeah, that's that's a truly amazing story. And, and you were definitely a trendsetter because like you said, nowadays, uh, volunteers, prospective volunteers apply to a country of service and a sector. So now it's actually possible to apply uh, to Ethiopia in the public health sector, right? Um, which, you know, a lot of things has changed. But, you know, it is interesting. I'm, I'm reflecting on when you were there and that, you know, Peace Corps was just over 10 years old at that time. And I think that, you know, it was still you know, evolving as an organization, it's still evolving today. Um, and it's, it's one of those, those organizations, I think that, uh, has really had to go through a lot of different iterations to be able to find the right folks, be able to find the folks in the States that are willing to, to make that leap, but also the types of people that will be able to go over and really serve their communities well. And, you know, I can hear the passion in your voice. And I think that the, the Ethiopian opportunity uh, was something that you were so incredibly dedicated to uh, that, you know, it, it panned out like you went over there and, and again, <laughs> truly amazed by the work that you did there. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, what was that experience like kind of getting into Ethiopia and trying to get a little bit of a, a lay of the land when you when you got there and uh, trying to identify kind of where you'd be spending your time? I know it's a lot different, I think, than when I was there, uh, but I'd like to hear kind of what your your first couple uh, days and weeks were on the ground. Right. Well, I was so excited landing in uh, Addis 
and uh, we were met by an um, existing Peace Corps volunteer. And while most of the uh, fellow volunteers went all, all off to um, to go to um, sleep immediately because it was such a long trip, um, we were staying at a hotel called the Itige Hotel, just off the piazza, which was a famous hotel. It was where Haile Selassie was um, uh, crowned, and there were big celebrations back in yeah. the 20s or early 30s. Uh, it, it, it had turned into a bit of a dump by the time we arrived, but um, that's where everyone went except for me. I was so excited that I went off with this Peace Corps volunteer and I ate Ethiopian food and did exactly what he told me not to do, which was like touch my eye at one point and my eye closed up <laughs> uh, because of the the Burberry. But it was just, and of course I could I couldn't sleep between the excitement of being there and being it also then at eight thousand feet, which interrupts yep. your sleep. Yep. You have to get used to it. Uh, yep. I, I think it was days before I had a proper. Uh, sleep, but I was just so excited, and then we went off to um, Awasa. Awasa was a brand new town, it had, a village really. It had just been planned. There were two um, dirt roads that intersected about a kilometer long, each of them, and that was Awasa. There were probably, I would say, maybe a thousand or five hundred people living in Awasa, and uh, that's where we were to spend um, our um, next um, six weeks, you know, six days a week, six hours a day, learning Amharic. That's that's amazing. And like I think of Awasa, which is this this now it's a large city uh, in the southern part of Ethiopia, kind of south of Addis. Uh, it has this beautiful lake that I, I had the opportunity to get on these little wooden boats and go out and see the hippos. Uh, and you know, I, I have amazing memories from Owasa, but it sounds like it was very different Owasa than when you were there. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy at the times and, and kind of how quickly things develop. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It was, um, it seemed like it was the end of the world, but I've been to Owasa now many times since then as well as, as part of my work. Um, and yes, I've seen, as you've said, how the place has absolutely, um, you know, you know, skyrocketed in terms of population, the landscape, the cityscape. I mean, it's a major hub. One of the things that you just mentioned too, like, you know, when I, I first got into Ethiopia, I think I had a similar kind of reaction to you, just so excited and wide eyed and, uh, you know, not really sure how I was going to be able to adapt, uh, but was just so incredibly determined to kind of soak it all in. And, you know, then we get put into, for, for our group, we got put into uh, homestays. So we joined a family, um, and that's when our intensive language training started for our program was, was 10 weeks. Can you tell me a little bit more about kind of what that six-week timeline was like for you? And, you know, that's one of the areas that I think, you know, the, the goals of the Peace Corps and our approach uh, actually hasn't changed much. I'm sure the, the types of training are, are similar. Um, of course, they've evolved, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your kind of first six weeks were like in Owasa. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I had very little, I, I didn't really know what to expect particularly. I mean, almost everybody else in my group had gone off to Denver before leaving for Ethiopia, where they were um, then assessed, I suppose, by psychologists secretly, and um, so maybe some of them were weeded out, maybe some of them got a little nervous, and that's what I think happened in my case. I think someone quit, and they decided they needed to fill up that spot in a hurry, and they looked through their files, and they selected me. They found someone who had actually asked for Ethiopia, so I was very lucky. Um, so, um, w so I didn't really have that much knowledge about what to expect, except that I knew I wanted to go to Ethiopia because 
among all of the countries on the Peace Corps list, it was, to me, it seemed the most remote country on their list and one that owed um, as little as possible to my um, Western upbringing, my Western culture, my heritage. And I just wanted to escape from this fairly comfortable upbringing that I had had um, my comfort zone and to test myself with something that was so alien and so strange. So I threw myself into the language. Like you said, I, I soaked everything up. I got out from the class, you know, it was six hours a day. I got out as much as possible to walk around the town and to, to use my new found skills, you know, on local people. I, I remember, um, uh, asking, um, um, for in a little shop, I asked if they could, um, um, give me a, um, cheese sandwich, except instead of using the word for cheese, there's a word, as you would probably know, very similar to cheese, which is rat. And I asked for a rat <laughs> sandwich. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I, I, I didn't want to um, um, be um, cocooned in the classroom and amongst uh, fellow Peace Corps volunteers. So I tried to go out as much as possible. And some of the... Um, um, more established Peace Corps volunteers who were with us, who were finishing their first year. We went on a few road trips out of Owasa, you know, went to um, Gemagofa, had a line outside of our tent one night. Um, so interesting stuff like that. And then it came time to figure out, okay, where were we going to be assigned? And uh, that was tr tricky because Every, you know, it seemed to me that the obvious place to be assigned was going to be in, you know, the heart of, um, you know, um, Orthodox, Coptic, you know, Christian Ethiopia, Abyssinia, the, the, the you know, the, the highlands. And, and I was afraid that everybody was going to be asking for the same thing. So I decided, and, and too many people would be disappointed. So I decided to ask instead for what was then called Wolo. Um, you know, now everything is different with, um, people's, you know, ethnic regions, but it was called Wolo. Tekelagazat, Wolo province, province, and I got assigned to Wolo. And during the course of the Peace Corps training, um, we were asked to then go. I think maybe three weeks into our uh, language training, to go and visit our sites where we were going to be posted. So I went up to visit that site, and that was a total revelation because it was we were in the midst of a famine at that point. Yeah, I again, that was you know, I'm I'm just reflecting on like what has and hasn't changed. And I'm, I'm just so truly amazed with the model of, you know, bringing Americans in and having kind of a, a couple of weeks of, you know, adaptation to the, the country, the food, uh, get some basic language under your belt, but then to throw you out for a site visit. And like, I remember going to my site, uh, just three weeks in to training and like revelation is a very good word. I, it was not in the middle of the famine. Uh, so I, I had a, I think a very different experience going up, up to Tigray. Um, but you know, that, that structure, you know, I think it, it really is amazing to hear you talk about it uh, because it still holds true today. Right. Yeah. It was um, just a great, uh, great experience. I mean, uh, in, I don't know, in your ca case, you may have gone straight to a host family that was going to be your home for the next year or whatever. In my case, um, <laughs> um, I was, I went to a, a uh, house that the Peace Corps volunteers the year before, or maybe even the year before that, had rented, and it was for all of the, uh, us fellow smallpox workers. So it was sort of like a, you know, a, um, um, a bachelor's uh, um, house apartment where I was surrounded by Americans 
not by a Peace Corps family and not by a, a local family. And we, we didn't see each other that much because we were in and out going out into the field, but it was a base. Um, a, a pad really for us to crash uh, for 10 days out of every month and spend the rest of the days in the field. That's, that's amazing. Um, can you, can you walk us through a little bit of the work that you started getting into then and kind of how that, that evolution unfolded toward the, the smallpox and then ultimately the famine work? Right, right. Well, um, so we always knew we were going to be, you know, assigned to the smallpox eradication program. So we had a little bit of a, um, you know, a half day, uh, technical training, as it were, in, um, Addis. Now, in previous years, to me, people had actually been trained at CDC, those who were going to be working at, in smallpox. Um, I think our group might have been the first or second not to have had that kind of in-depth CDC-style training. We went straight uh, to the field, more or less, with very little um, uh, formal training, except for half a day. Um, but we were um, asked to accompany the volunteers who were already there for a year to sort of learn the ropes. So I went with um, a um, Peace Corps volunteer who who knew what it was all about, and I learned really from him what, what the work entailed, which was, you know, largely walking in the mountains, which is where I was. I mean, other people were in, in the jungles in the south, but where I was, mostly in the mountains, although I did a lot of work in the Donegal Desert as well, um, up in Wola. And uh, it was um, walking from uh, village to village, um with a, a little card, a little photograph on both sides showing a child with smallpox uh, pustules and basically learning. My heart was pretty good. Technically, I could ask, you know, have you seen anybody with scabs or pus or whatever else um, like this? And, um, and trying to identify where there might be any rumors of smallpox and then go to those places and see if it was smallpox or perhaps it was chickenpox, which is the differential diagnosis most frequently confused with smallpox. And then uh, I always had someone with me, a local per person, usually a student, um, who um, together we would sort of do surveillance and try to vaccinate around any case that we found, uh, making sure that anybody who entered that area was vaccinated and also trying to find out where the infection might have come from in the first place and then go to that village next. That's that's quite amazing. And I'm just I'm picturing how that would look. And how old were you when you were doing all of this? I was 23. It was quite a quite a lot of responsibility. Um, I was very lucky. I, you know, I think people do well when they're asked to, to do, you know, you know, very responsible kinds of things. And I think Peace Corps is great at, at allowing people to challenge themselves and learn just how resilient they are. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. Can you walk us through then kind of the next phases of the, the smallpox story, uh, kind of how mm -hmm. that evolved? Right. Well, well, in my case, um, as it happened, I was doing smallpox work in the midst of a famine. Um, and I was so, um, you know, Naive in some ways. When I first arrived, I mentioned earlier how, you know, we went up to our site visits. So I went three weeks into being in Ethiopia. I went back to Addis, and then from Addis by bus up to Desi, and um, just um, in North Showa, just before getting into Wolo, just past Deborah Sine, Deborah Burhan, uh, before Kambolcha on the road. Um, there were starving people up and down the road. There were children emaciated 
in the middle of the road. The bus had to sort of navigate slowly around children in the road. So there was a famine going on, which, you know, I had no frame of reference to use the word famine because nobody anywhere in the world was talking about the Ethiopian famine. It, it had been quiet, kept quiet by the emperor uh, for a whole variety of historical reasons. And uh, it wasn't for a few, a few months later that um, a BBC correspondent sort of um, smuggled out some photos to show the world that there was a famine going on. So here I was in the you know, thinking to myself, my goodness, I always knew things were bad, but, you know, I, I really didn't imagine they could be this bad. But of course, what I was seeing was very unusual. Um, so there was this terrible famine going on. So here I was doing my smallpox work in areas that were, you know, that had other needs um, beyond the eradication of smallpox. So I gradually got more involved in, uh, once food started to arrive eventually, in uh, famine relief work, in, in food distribution work. And initially, it was still doing smallpox. I would um, position myself between, you know, several hundred, a thousand even or more people and the food. And as they came up to get their food, I'd make sure that I poked them um, with the uh, bifurcated needle and vaccinated them. In one day, my colleague and I um, could va vaccinate you know, 500 or more people. Whereas when I had been doing only smallpox work in the mountains, I could arrive in a village and I could spend all day long desperately trying to convince five people to get vaccinated because it was such an alien concept that people really didn't want anything to do with what I was offering. Yeah. I mean, to be able to work through those types of challenges on the ground, both with the famine, but then also trying to kind of uh, work you know, with that to try to mitigate issues wherever you can, but then also having vaccination as your primary mandate. Like, I, I can't imagine, right. like, as an individual, like, personally, how you how you navigated that, how you kind of yeah. got yourself up in the morning to, to push through some of those things. That sounds incredibly yeah. challenging. It was it, it was really terrible. I mean, um, when I think about it, it gives me goosebumps. Um, I, you know, smallpox, unlike other vaccinations where you can imagine a syringe, you know, with a needle, smallpox is, um, was administered with this small little thing that looked like a, a very small, you know, fork that you might use on hors d'oeuvres. Very small little fork, which when you, um, put it into the, um, um, vaccine, the surface tension between the two little um, prongs of the fork would hold a drop of vaccine in between those prongs. And then you would take the child or the person's arm and, you know, uh, uh, rest the, uh, the needle against the arm so that the fluid was on the arm. And then you poked 10 or 15 times through the fluid on the surface of the arm, just enough to just draw the tiniest little bl blood. Um, but, and that was the way to introduce the vaccine into the arm. Well, the children were so emaciated that you couldn't even, squeezing their upper arm, you couldn't even get any skin to give the vaccination. So gradually I, I shifted away from smallpox and got more directly involved full-time in famine relief work. And I was reassigned from Wollo up to Tigray, where you you served. And I was working um, assigned by the F Relief and Rehabilitation Commission in Addis Ababa up to Tigray to sort of help support them in, in um, you know, distributing the, um, the foods that were starting to arrive from overseas. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I mean, that that's that's amazing that you were able to make that that shift and kind of work through that and, and get your your bandwidth and your effort allocated toward uh, the you know more pressing need in that moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, Peace Corps was great to allow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Peace Corps, I don't know, it, it was amazing to allow a, us or allow me anyway to to do that. I mean, they didn't insist that I continue working, for example, on smallpox. In fact, as it turns out, there were 15 of us in our in my group. And after six months, I think there were only two of the 15 left still doing smallpox work. Almost everybody else had left the country or a few of us had shifted into other work. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing that you had you had the folks on the ground for it. And, you know, I think that that's that's something to be said. Um, you know, I'm I'm reflecting on, you know, my service and uh, my connection to Tigra in particular, like you like you mentioned. And, you know, right now, you know, fast forwarding to present day, there's another unfolding crisis in, in the Tigra region with the Ethiopian government, you know, going up uh, and, uh, you know, direct conflict with uh, what they're calling the, the TPLF, which is the political party from the Tigray region, uh, which has been in power for, um, you know, over 20 years with Melis Anawi. And there's a lot of history there as well. It's, it's super complex. But what we're seeing come out of that is a lot of atrocities, a lot of, uh, you know, genocidal um, findings, a lot of massacres, uh, you know, starvation and, and really the humanitarian need is, again, I think, reaching that that peak level that we've seen several times in Ethiopia. And for someone that has has lived there uh, not just once, but I know you've been back uh, to work in Ethiopia uh, a few times and you visited, like, what are you thinking about this current conflict? Like, how are you, you know, staying in, in contact with folks or what are you doing? And, and maybe what advice do you have for folks like me uh, who are, you know, trying to figure out the best ways to, uh, you know, affect change and raise awareness around this issue? Right. Well, um, um, I think those are very good um, questions, and um, it's so sad what's going on in Ethiopia. It reminds me, in some ways, of the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea back in the um, '90s, where, where I lose track of time here. But um, uh, maybe it was um, late '90s, early 2000s. There was, you know, serious, serious battle, battles going on, and you know, tens of thousands of people killed. And you know, I just feel like you know, marching down. To, I was still living in the Washington D.C. area. I felt like marching to the embassy, and you, you know, protesting. I didn't do it. I wish I had. But you know, the, these two cultures are more similar than they are different. I'm talking about the dominant culture in Ethiopia, the Amhara culture, and the dominant culture in um, in in uh, the Tigray region. Um, they're they're more similar than they are different. But then that's often what happens when. Um, you know, you look at the Afar and the Issa, um, the more similar the people are, it seems like um, there it generates more animosity. You know, when people are completely different, um, maybe um, uh, they're, m- people are more willing to accept something, someone that's so totally different. But when they start becoming similar in different ways, um, and then they, um, you know, just find excuses, uh, it's terrible what's going on in Tigray. And I haven't kept up. Uh, to the extent that I should have, I occasionally will write an email, and it, it makes me a little nervous because the emails don't always get returned, and I, I'm not sure the extent to which uh, the internet is itself being monitored, and maybe it's not such a good idea to be communicating with some of my colleagues. Yeah, and that is that is such a real 
challenge that I think all of us are facing and trying to figure out the best ways in which we can connect with folks on the ground and make sure our really our loved ones, our our Ethiopian families that that we all you know grew to know and to love are safe. But then balancing that with you know trying not to make people targets and and really trying to figure out um, really what's going on. And I think you know you mentioned something uh, with your with kind of some of these previous incidences around you know under Haile Selassie and um, certainly under the the Derg, the communist regime that came after him, uh, definitely during Melissanawi, like there's been a lot of this kind of tension between uh, basically information and access to information, right? And, um, you know, right now, one of the biggest challenges is there was a, a government-imposed lockdown that went into effect, meaning no communication. Uh, they shut off electricity. Uh, many of the areas also lost water. You know, they lost their access to the life-saving aid uh, that they they would typically be getting. So all of this is essentially cut off, and this this conflict is happening in the dark. And I think for someone like me who gets stories from my close friends, I'm able to share a little bit. But again, like we don't have independent journalists that are able to operate right now, just like many parts of the world. Like we just don't have that information. And I feel like uh, one of the interesting things that has come out of this is the network of Peace Corps volunteers that have folks in Ethiopia. They're the ones that are getting a lot of these stories two, three, four weeks before any of the major media organizations are picking up. And in fact, we've we've some of us have been involved in even helping develop those stories for for, you know, like CNN or other outlets. Right. And it, it really is a, a, a challenge, but also, I think, speaks volumes to the relationships in which Peace Corps volunteers develop with uh, their colleagues in the countries of service. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's similar in some ways and different at the same time, because what's going on now um, must be, you know, incredibly distressing to you, uh, who you know have who was in Ethiopia relatively more recently than me. It's distressing enough for me. My experience was was different in terms of the neglect um, that was being shown to people who were starving to death by the government, um, and for again some, I mean. My, my knowledge historically is pretty deep and pretty good about some of those antecedents, some of those reasons um, in northern Wolo on the border with Tigray, uh, Kobo, Alamata, Maichau, Korum, these places. Um, so I'm familiar with some of the reasoning behind, behind why Haile Selassie might have chosen um, that this was payback. Um, to allow the famine to go on in that particular area because there were historical reasons. Menelik and Haile Selassie himself were detained trying to pass through that area on the way back from the battles in the north. Um, so, so, um, you know, people remember these things. Forty years later, Haile Selassie basically ignored the famine in, um, that part of Ethiopia. So, um, uh, it was, um, you know, distressing in a different way. It wasn't so in your face. You know, people being killed, summarily executed, but people being allowed to die just the same. Yeah. And I know that you and I have talked about, you know, the kind of the the uniqueness of Ethiopia as a country and how even recently Ethiopia's 
well on its way to economic dominance in the region, if not the entire continent of, of Africa, like such a powerful economy and, and really, you know, made some pretty dramatic democratic shifts um, when Prime Minister uh, Ahmed assumed office. But then it, it really is mind boggling to see the pendulum swing just two years after he won the Nobel Peace Prize, for example. And I know that you've you, you know, you've you've been through some of those those swift changes in Ethiopia as well. I think you mentioned that Haile Selassie was arrested just a year after your service. Um, and and that's kind of the end of his ruling time in Ethiopia, yeah. right? It was amazing. When I arrived in Ethiopia, he was celebrating his 82nd birthday. It was a national holiday. Within a year, he was already being removed from his palace in a Volkswagen and taken into incarceration where he was subsequently um, um, killed. Um, uh, in probably, I think it was January of 75, and I was still in the country at the time. So I, I managed, I mean, to be in Ethiopia at a historically very important time for Ethiopia. Um, so it was an incredible experience because I could speak the language. I was with the, with my Ethiopian friends. We were, I was living through history. In fact, that's the name of the, the chapter in my book. I'm just kind of opening up the smallpox book. It's called um, "Living History in Northern Ethiopia." Um, so, and, and then I met my wife, who was running one of the uh, famine relief camps. She was from Ireland. Um, so, to to me and to my family, Ethiopia has been a really important part of who we are. Even it's, we've transmitted that to our kids and even to their kids. So my grandkids, for example, um, you know, clamor for Ethiopian food. Um, so, so Ethiopia was so important for us because we were living through such a momentous time. Um, but it was momentous in some ways that weren't, weren't that wasn't great because, um, the people really suffer, suffered, uh, at that time in the famine where I happened to be posted. Yeah, no, and that's that's such amazing context too, because I think it brings it back to like we're all humans plugging into this this really complex space, whether we're you know from abroad, from Ireland, from from the U.S., whether we're living you know in in the country, um, and it's really what connects us at the core. And I think which is why when when things like what we've been talking through right now have been happening. I think it really shakes us uh, to the absolute essentials of, of who we are. Um, right. And go ahead. And and we're just talking about Ethiopia. I mean, you can yep. multiply this. You know, yep. I'm sure Peace Corps volunteers listening to the podcast will have similar experiences in other countries. I mean, stuff is going on all over the world. It's really I, I don't know if it's, it was always there and wasn't as well detected. Uh, but now, you know, it's m more difficult to keep it quiet uh, or things are just getting worse. But um, uh, it's the, the, the world isn't half settled at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for those listening, I would definitely encourage you to to reach out to me if, if you are one of those those volunteers that has that story to share, because I'd love to learn from you. And, you know, from the Ethiopian front, like, you know, definitely you know, re-engage and engage with what's going on right now. Uh, cause a lot of the stuff we're talking about now is, you know, obviously in the past, but many, many of these issues are, are ongoing. So definitely, uh, you know, have a look. And the, the, the experience that Peace Corps volunteers have, I always felt was so important that, um, when I, you know, you know, later on in my career had 
you know, responsibility for, you know, teams working on immunization all over the world, um, and as well as a, you know, a large team in Washington, D.C. Um, when, when we had opportunities to recruit, uh, for, you know, more junior level entry positions, um, we always, um, opted for returned Peace Corps volunteers, um, who maybe were interested in public health, um, or maybe something related to international relations, um, and were, you know, looking for a year or two of, um, you know, work experience in the United States in an international environment, cross-cultural environment, we always would select, and, and then we're planning to maybe go to school, uh, for graduate school afterwards, we would always select uh, those people more than someone who had been on a conveyor belt and had really not had a lot of work experience or a lot of overseas experience and had, gone, had even gone straight from a uh, you know, bachelor's degree straight into a public health career, um, public health um, uh course of study, but hadn't really had field experience or um, cross-cultural experience. So, you know, I think Peace Corps really um, does a good job of giving, you know, young people an opportunity to test themselves and to learn what the world is like. Yeah, such an important note. And I'd, I'd love to build on that notion too, thinking about your career and how, how your career evolved kind of post Peace Corps, because I know you, you kind of took the, the smallpox efforts and saw them through. Uh, and that I think planted uh, such a, a nice seed to have, uh, you know, a, a multi-decade-long uh, career in public health and immunization uh, in particular. So, can you maybe walk us through what what happened post Ethiopia in that vein? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, the Peace Corps experience was certainly life-altering. Um, when I before I joined Peace Corps, I had vaguely heard of this field called public health. And, um, you know, just as I was writing to organizations asking if they would hire me to work overseas, I was also writing to schools of public health asking, do I have the right kind of background? Again, this was before, you know, the internet where you could look up what the schools were looking for. And every one of the schools I wrote to said, no, no, you don't have the right background. You're not a doctor. You're not a nurse. You didn't study science, undergraduate, et cetera, et cetera. But when I got back from Peace Corps, that Peace Corps experience was so profound that the very same schools of public health that I had applied to before, um, or that I had at least communicated with the admissions department before leaving for Ethiopia, those very same schools that had told me that I wasn't the right, you know, profile, they all accepted me just on the strength of that Peace Corps experience in smallpox. So I went to Hopkins. Um, I was, as far as I understand, the first non-doctor, non-nurse ever accepted into the International Health Department (laughs) at, at Hopkins. That's amazing. Yeah. And, um, they subsequently created a whole degree program called the Masters in Health Science, um, to deal with people like me who weren't already professionals, but who had, who were coming from backgrounds, who had skills. They might be computer people or anthropologists or, um, behavioral science, uh, scientists of one sort or another or logistics people. I mean, um, the, in other words, there was more and more recognition in schools of public health that public health to succeed requires more than just um, doctors and nurses. And you see that now with the COVID response, how many other disciplines uh, need to be engaged. So anyway, so I did um, my degree at Hopkins and then um, I worked for CARE in Nicaragua in the jungle for a while. We were there with my family. My son was um, three months old. We were uh, in the eastern part of Nicaragua in the jungle. 
And then um, a revolution started to overthrow um, Samosa, who was the head of uh, Nicaragua at the time. And a, a lot of that revolution was was based in the area where we were. So it was very unsafe for us to stay there any longer. So I was amazingly able to go straight from Nicaragua to North Yemen, what was called the Yemen Arab Republic. In those days, there was a North and South Yemen. So I went to North Yemen working with WHO um, at the very late last stages of the eradication program of smallpox. Uh, my job as a 28-year-old, one of the best jobs I ever had, was to basically design and manage and implement um, a program which was going to collect the evidence to prove whether or not smallpox still existed in North Yemen. Because North Yemen, South Yemen, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya, those six countries were the last countries that had yet to be certified free of smallpox. And it wasn't until those countries could be certified free, based upon good documentation, um, that the world could then declare that the disease had been eradicated and countries could stop vaccinating against smallpox. So I basically, you know, went all over um, uh, Yemen. Uh, I hired, I talked to Peace Corps. This is an interesting circular thing. I talked to Peace Corps saying, I need some people to help me. And uh, they assigned three Peace Corps volunteers to me. So we, we traveled all over North Yemen. By my reckoning, I was probably one of the most well-traveled people ever in North Yemen because the country had been pretty closed up until that point. And the roads had only just started to be built a few years before um, with remittances from Yemenis working in Saudi Arabia. So I did, did all my driving, this very mountainous. Yemen, North Yemen is like Ethiopia in reverse on the other side of the Red Sea. You know, you got the, um, the, um, uh, the lowlands along the Red Sea and then you got very high mountains. So I got to do that in uh, Yemen for a year and then that morphed into uh, working with WHO for three more years to help establish the nationwide immunization program for children. From, from there I went to Oman and then from there to Nepal. So for two years in Oman, four years in Nepal, again for WHO, helping to establish the um, nationwide immunization program. Then I left with my family. My family was with us the, with me the entire time. Uh, we went back to the United States and I joined JSI, John Snow Incorporated, and I was there for uh, 30, 31 years working in immunization uh, in charge of their global immunization effort. And we, we worked in about probably about 50 or 60 countries. Personally, I've worked in about 50 countries uh, trying to strengthen the uh, ability of the ministries of health in these countries to immunize their populations on a regular basis. And then also um, to go after individual diseases like polio, measles, diphtheria, hepatitis, and also um, introduce new vaccines as well in the past 10 or 15 years. So it was a very rewarding career. And I worked with great people um, in all over the world and it got to travel a lot. So it was like a dream come true. I mean, that that is such an incredible story. And I think one of the the things that's just jumping out to me is how many people's lives you touched and the impact of having a career like that in public health. And obviously you were, you were such a titan and such a groundbreaker in many respects going through these different countries. But I think like, you know, on, on multiple sides of that, that experience, you know, you're, you're helping, uh, folks in these countries, you know, fight diseases that have been, you know, affecting their, their populations for decades, if not, you know, centuries. And on the same time, you're inspiring and working with Peace Corps volunteers and, you know, getting people in 
from the states or from other countries to come in and and work on these issues and like that that to me is such a kind of a core like peace corps trait it's you know connecting all of these different pieces and building that robust network to kind of take take the onus off any one individual and have this kind of collaborative and collectivist approach to solving problems and like that that is just screaming at me right now is something that you are so incredibly talented at doing well, well, the the fun thing. Thank you for that for saying that. The fun thing in my work was that um, there are lots of um, groups who are very very skilled um, organizations like UNICEF and WHO and CDC, for example. Um, what we were able to do oftentimes was to find those aspects of the immunization program that weren't receiving their. F- required share of attention technically um, because you know you see that now in the United States all this discussion about the vaccine the vaccine the vaccine finally people are talking about oh my god how are we going to vaccinate the population you know it, it seems like we forgot about planning for the vaccination well the vaccination is a major effort to plan for so it's not just epidemiology and immunology and um, um, vaccinology um, it, it, it's um it's the practical side of making sure that whatever disciplines are required are brought to, you know, bear and brought to the um, um, occasion to try to um, improve the situation, which means doing things that sometimes other groups won't be doing. So focusing very much on logistics or focusing very much on trying to harness the energy in communities because um, the health sector, public health as well, especially public health, never gets the kind of funding that's required. We've seen that now in the United States with COVID. Uh, we're now awakening to the fact that public health has been underfunded. So um, is trying to get um, um, other sectors, whether it's the education sector or community organizations, civil society, religious groups, to get them engaged as well, to make it a sort of an all of society effort to have kids vaccinated year in and year out on a routine basis. So that was our focus to a great extent in the work that we did, which was funded by the U.S. government, the U.S. Agency for International Development. In more recent years, we got funding from WHO, UNICEF, Gates Foundation, and other groups uh, because we created an immunization center at JSI, which allowed us to get funding from groups other than just the U.S. government, which was a project-based approach. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned kind of the, the public health uh, field in general and, and good public health work not getting the recognition in general that it deserves. And um, I've got a couple of good friends in that work in public health, uh, one of which has uh, well, actually a couple have been on this podcast before. Uh, but but they always tell me when public health is working, when it's actually really successful, nobody sees it. Because, you know, if if like you weren't vaccinating everybody for this this horrible disease, the disease would be everywhere, which is why I think covid has like completely removed the veil on on the value of public health. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think this is like a watershed moment for investment in more longer term, like uh, interdisciplinary and cohesive public health strategies? So so um, I, I think about that a lot, Benjamin, and um 
I, I do think that, um, and I've heard that applications for schools of public health have absolutely skyrocketed because it's a discipline that people are now suddenly hearing of. And I totally agree with you and your friends with their comments. I mean, the way I describe it is, you know, when do you ever wake up in the morning, um, open up a newspaper, you know, digital newspaper or a real newspaper, a hard, co- hard copy? When do you ever open it up and, and the headline is, there were no crashes of 747s or 777s last night or, or the water is safe to drink again this morning. I mean, actually in, in Flint, Michigan, that would be a headline. Um, uh, but because we do take for granted public health, like you say, when it works, nobody, um, pays it any mind. So we, we, we have this tendency to go from sort of neglect to panic and then back to neglect and not invest in the long term um, and especially the preventable kinds of things. We, we even saw that in Texas with the electric grid that failed so miser- miserably a few months ago. Um, people just choosing not to invest in public goods in a preventive way that makes sense. Someone, someone famously said, and I wish I could remember who it was, that in the United States we've, we've, um, privatized profit and socialized risk. So, 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 you know, you know, it's all about making money and, um, it's what I used to call market fundamentalism, really. And, and forget it, forgetting that the public sector has a, and government has a really important role to play. And along those lines, I remember reading Bill Gates saying something about, you know, the private sector didn't eradicate smallpox. It was the public sector that did it. And I think if one good thing at all comes out of the whole COVID mess in the United States is maybe a recognition that public health is important and one needs to invest for the long term uh, to make sure that uh, we're better prepared next time. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I it's been really fascinating, I think, to see folks kind of opening up their aperture to also the definition of what falls into the public health domain. And I think we're starting to hear a lot more about social determinants of health and these things that are more systemic and affect various populations disproportionately and how that actually is so incredibly rooted in public health practices and how we can tailor our interventions to specific groups of people in a way that has, like like you said, like it, it has a positive, net positive on that, that public good that actually impacts everybody. And like infectious disease is definitely uh, a low hanging fruit kind of conceptually for that concept. Um, But, you know, you can scale that out to many, many other issues that we face as a society, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah, that's what that's what I think um, is so great about the field of public health for any of the listeners who are wondering what they're going to be doing with the rest of their lives is that public health is a is a very potentially large tent under which many disciplines can fit and um, I'm talking about logisticians IT people behavioral scientists um, community activists communications specialists advocates um, philosophers ethicists Lawyers. I mean, my goodness, COVID has really uh, made it very clear that there are so many legal issues as well that need to be dealt with. You know, I, um, you know, um, data people, monitoring people, obviously, and that's all in addition to the epidemiologists that we mostly hear about. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be really fascinating to see how that evolves now that, that I think that spotlight has shifted pretty dramatically. So on that note too, like what, 
I, I'd love to hear from you kind of what general advice you'd have for folks that are listening on a like something like the Peace Corps, like maybe somebody is considering joining the Peace Corps or even having some sort of extended experience abroad. Like, what would you say to that person right now? I would say absolutely go for it. I mean, um, to be able to, um, first of all, you, you'll be given more responsibility at a younger point in your career, at an earlier point in your career than you would here in the United States. So the, you know, just at, at, at a level of work, you'll be learning, um, I think more rapidly, whatever about actually testing yourself to live in an, in an unfamiliar culture, um, practicing a language, learning a language, learning how to, you know, live in an interconnected world, you know, having those kind of cross-cultural experiences, because that'll serve you well when you get back to the States. The United States, there's so much cross-cultural stuff right here in the U.S. that, um, um, you know, being able to expand your mind um, um, is so important, um, I think, uh, to jump off the conveyor belt, um, uh, it's so worthwhile. You know, okay, so, you know, a lot of people are in debt when they graduate from college and it keeps them from doing things like this. And that's obviously a fair, um, uh, constraint. Um, on the other, on the other hand, if there's any chance to go overseas, even if it's just for a semester, uh, if you're still in school or for a summer or for, you know, extended period of time like the Peace Corps, um, it, it's going to, you know, most likely change the way you think about the world. And uh, that's a pretty powerful experience to have with such a short investment in time. Yeah, that's that's so well put, like the transformational nature of of getting out and, and breaking that up and seeing the world in a whole new light. I'd love to ask like a, a similar question then for for public health. You know, if somebody is is now maybe it's a, a you know during and post COVID type of response, or maybe someone has just been interested in that field for for a while. What would you say to somebody that is uh, looking into getting into public health? Well, um, I would definitely encourage. Um, like I said, it's a big tent. So if you come to public health already interested in any of those numbers of disciplines I mentioned, uh, you can be accommodated within public health, um, whether you're a lawyer or a logistician or whatever, behavioral scientist. There's scope for you to, um, you know, learn better your, your, um, your skill area and your craft, um, and apply it to public health. Public health is a great field. If you're committed to sort of, um, equity and social justice, these were things that motivated me back in the late sixties, early seventies. If you're interested in those kinds of things, um, public health is a great, um, endeavor really, um, to go into. Um, it's, and I, I, I keep thinking about, you know, the movie, The Graduate. It's in my mind all the time where, where he comes back from college. He doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. He's, he's, um, Dustin Hoffman. He's sort of floating around in, in his family's pool in California. And one of his father's friends, Mr. Robinson, uh, said, despairs watching Benjamin is his name, as a matter of fact, um, floating around in the pool <laughs> and says, Benjamin, I have just one word for you. And yes, Mr. Robinson, plastics. And what do you mean, Mr. Robinson? Plastics, it's what you need to do with your life. And, you know, I'm not disparaging it. I'm sure there's great th things to be learned in plastics. Um, but how fortunate I was and how fortunate some of the listeners might be if they go into an area like public health, which brings in all of these different interests and requires a team approach to solve 
um, really important issues of equity and social justice and, you know, better health um, for people. And that could be in your own neighborhood. I'm just now getting involved, trying to get involved in the county I live in, in North Carolina, because um, I, I feel that maybe I could offer something here locally, even though my perspective has never been the United States and I know nothing about the United States. But I just feel that some of the some of the challenges are so similar, irrespective of where you find yourself, that if you go into public health, um, whether it's globally or domestically, um, you still have the you don't foreclose options because you're learning things that can be applied in other settings. Yeah, that that is so well said. And I think, you know, putting putting your career up as an example of, you know, what what that that field can really, you know, offer somebody. And I I think of the wayfinding that that is life. And I think of the, you know, the notion that the more you travel, the more you realize you haven't really seen the world, you haven't traveled that much. Right. And I, I think of public health, too, and, and how you and your career, you kind of followed uh, smallpox across different geographical areas, kind of uh, on this this super interesting evolution to see that disease become eradicated. And, you know, we're not all going to be able to eradicate a disease or, or be even directly involved in those efforts. Um, but to really play a hand in really meaningful and deep work and have an impact on so many other people's lives is is just amazing. And, you know, I definitely commend you for everything that you've done and, and your storytelling even here today to hopefully kind of ignite that for other people. Thank you so much, Benjamin. I, I totally lucked out. I was in the best, greatest public health effort and achievement that mankind has known. <laughs> and I just sort of stumbled, stumbled into it, sort of. <laughs> so, um, so it's been great. And I've, you know, I've been associated with great people overseas and in the United States. Um, so it's been an inspiring group of people to be surrounded by um, and um, doing good work. And um, yeah, it's definitely something I would encourage your listeners to think about. It's a great career. Absolutely, and I, got to, and, and I got to see the world and and yeah. fulfill my desire for adventure, which was one of the key drivers. Yeah, definitely. And and you mentioned other people. You know, I will I will certainly link that that book, uh, the Eradicating Smallpox book, and and that chronicles not just your story but many other stories on that kind of entire arc there. So you know, if folks want to learn more about kind of that that collection of stories, uh, definitely have a look there. Um, and I will also toss your LinkedIn profile into the show notes so people can reach out to you directly if they have questions. And I would definitely encourage all of you to do so. I personally have learned so much from you, Robert. It's been such an honor to be able to talk to you in this medium and uh, our kind of planning conversations and, and everything. It really has been great. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed it, Benjamin, and I, I really um, uh, congratulate you on your effort here to get people to tell their stories because that's what we do as humans is tell stories and share experiences and um, I think we can learn from each other and um, you're, you are um, advancing that cause and um, and uh, addressing or trying to attract people to um, a cross-cultural you know get accustomed to living in a cross-cultural world and to um, um, uh, improve as human beings, really, by being in that cross-cultural world. Um, and uh, so I, it's great. I mean, I, I, I've i loved it. I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to uh, talk to you about these experiences. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the same way that, you know, you and I threw our, our experiences into a journal um, many, many years ago for, for ourselves to go back and reflect on that that version of ourselves, you know, back when we were uh, in, in those moments in our lives. This, I think, is such a great opportunity for us to kind of reignite those memories, reapply them, reevaluate them. And uh, hopefully folks listening can can gain a little bit of wisdom from these conversations. I hope so. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for joining. Uh, it's been a true thank pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Thank, thank you, Benjamin, for uh, having me and for um, um, allowing me to ramble down or amble down a memory lane here. It was uh, fun. Absolutely. And there it is. Robert is such a trailblazer and a true leader in global public health. It's really amazing to reflect on the work that a young Robert was doing in Ethiopia in the 1970s uh, to help eradicate smallpox and how he was able to use that as a seed for a really long and successful and impactful career in global public health. I would encourage every single one of you to take a look at the book chapter uh, that Robert authored about that experience with the 70 uh, other Peace Corps volunteers that were part of that effort. It is really astounding what they were able to pull off. Uh, I will link that in the show notes. Uh, I would also encourage all of you to reach out to Robert on LinkedIn if you have any further questions about his career, about what it's like to work abroad, what it is like to work in eradicating disease around the world, and how to navigate that professional and personal landscape. Uh, he, again, is just such an inspiration, and I was so glad to be able to unpack uh, the nuances of his stories and really dive deep into uh, how he sees the world and how he reflects on his long career abroad and uh, really how he re reflects on how that impacted his life in the long run. Uh, it is really great uh, to be able to talk to somebody that's on the other side of that career uh, and kind of just seeing how he reflected and how he is you know, continuously going back to recall in his words uh, what he was like back then. Like, what is that version of himself that he can go back to see uh, in his, his journals and other documentation? So uh, really a truly inspirational leader. Thank you so much for joining uh, for this conversation today. I would encourage all of you uh, to continue to follow Robert because he's always out there uh, spreading the good word. So check him out. Uh, also, thank you again for jumping on the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, I would love a follow uh, on your favorite podcast. Uh, podcast platform and you know if you have any additional ideas for guests that should come on the pod uh, please shoot me a note on instagram or reach out uh, on linkedin or facebook uh, i'm always open to continuing to chat uh, robert actually was introduced to me uh, through another one of my colleagues uh, for this conversation so super open to the idea of uh, having some suggestions for future conversations you would like to see come through so with that i hope everybody has gone out and acquired their vaccine if you haven't and if you're eligible and healthy enough to go out and get it i would definitely encourage you to do so and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in.